Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother, Michael, to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be diving into the chapters we're discussing today and those we read before, but the only spoilers beyond the chapters we discuss will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, which he watched a decade ago. Today, we're discussing Catelyn 9, John 8, and Danny 7 of A Game of Thrones. How's it going, Michael? You know, I had an experience this evening, Dan, that brought me closer to the characters in this book than I've ever been before. Oh, God. We I don't even using... have a sister, Michael. Oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, no, not gross, you grossy gross. Uh, I was using a mandolin, like, to cut an eggplant. Okay. And I, like, sliced my finger, man. Oh, like, shit. Super sliced it. You got, like, a crazy band-aid on there. Wait. It's my so... fifth one. Like, uh, it's, it's toilet. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, not toilet paper, but... Uh, Whatever it is that you keep by the sink, that's paper. paper Cleaning towels? paper. Paper towels. It's, it's like paper towels wrapped in a Band-Aid. Uh, the other ones kept soaking through, but I now understand what it means to be surrounded by blood. The red of blood on the white of the plate that I was accidentally above. You know, I don't even know what you're referencing in terms of this book, but I'm sorry you hurt yourself. Uh, and now you two are one of those bastards and broken things. Listen, man, when you play with swords, sometimes you get cut. Yeah, they were definitely referring to thinly slicing potatoes. A cut is a cut, man. And it was an eggplant. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I, uh, I need to start us off here with a correction. I realized today, as I was uh, getting into my notes for these chapters, I have been getting the Catlin chapter numbers wrong since the very beginning, which I feel like I need to apologize for since I always make fun of you for this. Uh, uh yeah i'm well on the one hand i'm glad to get the credit for you know you realizing that you're making fun of me when you shouldn't be but on the other who can keep track of these friggin catlin chapters talk about a drag <laughs> i kind of knew you'd say that but yeah i had uh i had two catlin ones at the beginning of my notes and i always just check what the last one we talked about was so this is catlin nine not catlin eight. Oh my uh, god catlin nine that changes everything <laughs> okay. You're making fun, but you I'm know, playing. I try to be correct on things. But, you know, before we get into the chapter, we uh, we haven't just talked about our audience in a little while. And mm. uh, and and I wanted to update you on that as well as the listeners. We've got some exciting things going on. We're, we're coming up quick on 1100 all time downloads, which I'm pretty pumped about. Oh all goodness. credit to our our loyal listeners here that have stuck with us week by week as we go through this. Woo! We keep going global, Michael. We, we've got a pretty fun list of countries here that I just okay. wanted to give a shout out to. West uh, one of our most popular locations is in Ukraine. It must, get, it must be getting real bad over there. This is what they have. They're really digging for content. Uh, uh, but you know, we've recently added uh, some listeners in Turkey, Poland, the Faroe Islands. I don't even know where that is. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Wow, Luxembourg and Belgium. Uh, we're really all over the place here. So, you know, I don't know if this means that some of our listeners are using some really expensive VPNs or if we're, you know, the sound of our voice is really pleasant to people who thankfully can't understand what we're saying or if we're actually, you know, just, just getting some real listeners. So, you know, give us a shout. Uh, if this applies to any of you, we'd love to hear from you, how you found the podcast about your experiences. And as always, you know, if, if there are any questions you want Michael to try and answer about the stories, 
shoot us an email, shoot us a tweet. Uh, Twitter's kind of dead. So the, the email, we'll put that out there is brothers with banners, brothers with periods between the words, brothers with banners at gmail.com. So, you know, email us, shoot us I'm a really, tweet. I'm really flattered and see it taken aback. A whole listen, look at our listeners. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, you know, I'm, we've been- I bet they're listening from my, my, my perspective. You're pretty boring. We'd have more listeners if it was only me. You know, you're making a joke right now, but I actually think that's right. Like, I think the experience, <laughs> no, I think for most people, the fun of this is listening to somebody going through it for the first time and the predictions that you have and the way you're engaging with the material. Like, I'm doing a pretty, pretty shallow analysis. There's plenty of people who have said much smarter and more eloquent things than me about these books, but uh, I'm having a lot of fun reading along with you and get to hear your thoughts as you go through it for the first time. And I, I hope everybody else is too. Well, I guess the only thing we can then say to our listeners is you're welcome. We do create <laughs> a great product. Uh, Look at our content. All right. Well, well, we should we should keep moving here. We've got a lot to get through today. We've got three chapters for once, but I, I just wanted to give you that update. I, I saw some of the stats today and uh, thought you'd appreciate hearing about it. And I do. And it's also just really flattering to know that people, there are some people out there. Yeah, listening. all jokes and aside. Glad, glad to have you guys listening. And, and it's been a lot of fun for us to do it. And we're glad to be here. Uh, with that said, I just don't want to withhold from our listeners any longer. It's important yeah, to dive in. I know how desperate you are to talk about Catlin. Listen, I think my feelings about this Catlin chapter can be summed up in one simple noise. <laughs> Oh boy, I had a feeling that was coming. Ah, kind of saw um, that one from a mile away there. That's fine. Although I do, you know. So here we go. Catlin nine, right? We're jump, we're jumping into it. I, the the battles are starting. We we talked a few chapters ago, and then maybe uh, even you know a hand you know ten or fifteen chapters before that. We have these sort of ebbs and flows throughout this book. It's the pieces the pieces on the chessboard are getting sort of reset, and then they get into action, and we're getting to action. You know. Catelyn is here with Rob. They're marching down from Winterfell uh, to to try to get basically down to King's Landing, if I'm not mistaken. They're joining the You Eerie. are mistaken. They're, also they're, no. They're at the River Run. There you go. Third try. Uh, <laughs> they're going south. I mock, I mock but this is really just a such an <laughs> indictment of me as your guide through this story. No, so we, we talked last time we were with Catelyn about yeah. Rob's whole plan here. Uh, so they have left Moat Caitlin, which is at the bottom of, of the region of the north. They're moving through the neck here. And their goal is to get to River Run. But the way that they're going to do that is there is, is currently a river between them and River Run uh, that goes down and connects into another one. This is part of the, the group of rivers that are the Trident. And so they could go all the way around that, which would require going through Tywin Lannister. Or, as Rob's plan, split the army, leave a distraction, a decoy for Tywin to go up against, but take the cavalry and cross at a bridge over this river, which is controlled by one of the lords, Walder Frey, who we're about to meet, and rush from there to River Run to go and help Edmure in his fight against Jaime. And that way, put the river that they're by between themselves and Tywin's army, which will prevent him from being able to come reinforce Jaime and make it a 2v1. Uh, but is anybody going towards King's Landing, though, for Ned at this point? Or nobody's considering no. waiting for Stannis? No. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a good question and an important question. So the feint, the decoy force, 
Tywin can probably assume is headed towards King's Landing. Like that's that's why he thinks Rob is going to try and go okay. through him. Uh, but because of where Tywin is positioned, that's not an option that they have right now. Tywin has in his army more men by himself than than Rob does. Uh, and so what Rob needs now is to try and relieve the Riverlands who have been getting their butts kicked by the Lannisters so that he can try and consolidate those forces, which are pretty scattered with his own, and try and even the scales a little bit in terms of numbers against the Lannisters. So Ned's going to have to, you know, cool his heels in his jail cell until all of that can happen before Rob will have an opportunity if he so chooses to make a play on King's Landing. Stannis is better positioned for King's Landing. He's out on an island on the island of Dragonstone uh, mm -hmm. and King's Landing as a port town. He would have direct access to that, but we don't know what his plans are and Rob certainly can't rely on him. Uh, so Ned, in the last chapter we read last week, was thinking about all the different ways that people could come save him. And one of those was Rob marching south and Catelyn bringing everybody together. Another one was Stannis hearing that he's supposed to be the king now and knowing he's supposed to be the king, maybe he'll come and invade and save Ned. Uh, but those are two separate things, and, and those two camps have no contact with each other. Gotcha. Okay. And I guess this kind of goes into my comment about this chapter as we're starting to get into it, which is the, the pieces are, it, we're no longer reading chapters about pieces being set. We're actually watching pieces in motion. That yes. said, Catelyn chapters are, for me at least, a little heavy handed on the sort of like emotional perspective that she brings to a lot of this, uh, rather than a little bit more strategic detail that I would enjoy, like the on the ground, like 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 in the muck type type of uh, detail. Yeah, That's yeah, you know, difference. I agree, especially on this one because we got such a heavy dose of it last time, and I, mm -hmm. I, you know, we talked at length about that, and I think it's very interesting. But particularly with how much we have to get through here, I think it's worthwhile to maybe focus more on the actual plot beats and, and how we're moving through things yeah. in the two halves of this chapter here. Um, and so, you know, the listeners should know uh, if they're not reading along with us in real time that we once again just have a lot of references from Catelyn to her fear about Rob mingled with her pride for Rob and her fear about her family generally, both on the Tully side and on the Stark side. Now, all of that is really salted pretty consistently throughout this chapter. I get the sense that uh, George R. R. Martin's trying to cram a lot of emotional feelings into a very short number, like a few, like, like just a few pages. And so you have this, what feels almost erratic sensation from Catelyn, but we can get into it and kind of watch as she goes through. Agreed. With that said, uh, we start with Catelyn inside her own head talking about her fears <laughs> yeah. like, like uh that's her apprehensions grew uh she feared for her dad she feared because he's so silent and she's not hearing from him she feared for her brother she hopes that gods watch over him she fears for ned and her daughter she fears for her sons that she left behind at winterfell she feels for her son that she's with you she's afraid dan she's <laughs> afraid yes, she um but and then she says, but I have to be brave. It's my turn to be a Stark. I have to Stark it up. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> that's basically the chapter. Um, you know, she, she's, she's there with Rob, basically. Rob is the head of all of this. She's trying to play a delicate balance between, you know, a, a supportive political figure for Rob, somebody that he can rely on as a counselor, and yet at the same time kind of take care of her motherly needs. At the same time, not be overbearing to Rob and not detract mm -hmm. from his stature of leading his leadership. His army. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's the central, a, yeah. 
The central issue that she's trying to coach him through for the first half of this chapter is about that river crossing that we were just talking about. So, mm-hmm. so really the first half of this chapter, as I see it, is laying the groundwork for the pressure that is on Rob, both the importance of getting across the river in a timely manner and the various difficulties that stand in, in his way for that. We're also getting like a conversation. So, so I think it's fair to say, and let me know if you feel this is wrong, but the first half of this chapter is they're basically approaching or they're kind of paused at a bit of a distance from this crossing, the twins. Yes. The twins are two identical towers that basically sit one on each side of this river. Uh, and you can't really cross without going through them. Yeah, so they're specifically the they have a bridge connecting them. Uh, mm-hmm. with another tower in the middle of the bridge, um, but the tower's base, the entry point to it, lies within each of these castles. Right. So the phrase, the house that controls this, have become a fairly powerful house, we learned, because they have spent generations charging a toll to cross the river here. If you want to cross the river without having to go all the way around to the south, you have to pay them what it is they're asking for, and they've managed to get very rich off the basis of that. I will say, looking at the map at the beginning of the book, if they were marching down from Winterfell on the King's Road, well, you know what, maybe I'm being a little bit of a prick when I say this. I can see on the map that they're marching on the King's Road, and that kind of takes them near the twins, and that's where they kind of cross. I was going to think they could have split a little earlier above where the river starts, but you know what? So I'm, I'm looking at this here now, too. So the, the top of that river is Greywater Watch. Uh, I don't know if that's listed on your map. I have yeah, a, yeah. a detailed one I found online. Uh, and that is in the middle of the bogs of the neck. So that's just not an area you can get through. So the King's Road, which you see comes down to the east of Greywater Watch, that's really the only navigable area that that you can actually get an army through. So maybe you could get a small group through the neck, but certainly a full army has to come down south first. Okay, so with that said, they have to cross this friggin' bridge, and they're talking about it. Um, there's, There's a little bit of education that Catelyn's sort of giving to Rob here. Rob has shown a real acumen towards, you know, leadership and sort of the Ned, if he, he seems to be a good student in the school of Ned Stark leadership, uh, which, which is cool to see. But that's if there's plenty for him to learn. He's trying to think about, you know, one of the things that Rob keeps saying is like, of course, you know, what's his name? Walden Frey, Walder Frey? Walder. Yeah. Walder Frey, of course he's going to let us through. Didn't he swear allegiance to like your brother? I think he said to, to Catelyn, right? To your dad. Her dad. River yeah. uh, you know, like what, of course he'll let us through. Like what's the question here? And Catelyn kind of is trying to share indirectly and then rather directly saying like, listen, like the man has been around for a long time. We, he's, you, we've all needed to, and we shall continue to need to not take him at his word. He is a political player in the in the most intelligent of ways. He clearly is out for himself, and he's clearly done well that way. Yeah. We also learn that he's had a trillion children. Yeah, uh, specifically, Cap brings up a piece of history that we've heard before with respect to why Walder Frick can't really be trusted, which is that during Robert's rebellion, he was very late to join the Robert Baratheon cause, and specifically the fight the battle at the Trident where Robert killed Rhaegar, of course, happened in the Riverlands. We know that's where the Trident is. And he got there late. 
he he got there after the battle was resolved and said, oh, I was on my way to help you out with the general assumption on the Baratheon Stark Tully Aaron side being that if he had shown up and Rhaegar had won that battle, he would have said, I'm here to help the king. Right. And that this was really a, a strategy play. And we actually kind of heard something similar about the Lannisters as well, who really only got into the war near the end and then were able to sack King's Landing because they were let in by the Targaryens who, who thought that they were coming to help out. Um, so, so this is kind of a little bit of a, an alignment there, but Kat emphasizes this lack of trust and, and the fact, you know, she says, what's the line? Some men take, take their oaths more seriously than others. Uh, and this is, you know, it's an important thing for Rob to learn. This is kind of childish of him to assume that the oath matters above all else. And certainly as somebody leading a coalition of lords who have sworn oaths to his family, this is something he needs to be aware of and on guard against. Callan also mentions that one of Walter Frey's sons is wed to Tywin Lannister's sister. And she's quick to follow up that up by saying he also has a ton of kids. Like, yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean that there's sworn fealty one direction or another, but she is quick to point that out. Whereas Rob is quick to say, you know, he swore allegiance to, you know, your father. He's part of our clan. She's quick to point out, like, just like, that's just one piece of a big, big quilt that's made up of different fabrics like this. Yeah. And I, I want to return to that as we get into the second half of the chapter, because I think that's a great point. Um, great. So moving through this first half of the chapter, uh, th there's some updates that kind of keep happening throughout this. They really are sort of set into camp. Uh, Theon Greyjoy comes bringing news about, uh, you know, he was in a, I think he was in a, like, like sort of a patrol further ahead that was scouting out. They killed yeah. some, some Lannister scouts. Yeah, specifically, we learned that that Brendan, the Blackfish, is leading Rob's scouts now. So we know that he's, you know, a, a very successful, very experienced soldier, and Rob has put him to work leading the scouting patrols. And importantly, he's doing cleanup for any scouts that they run into, so as to make sure that the fog of war kind of stays in place. And we also learned that he's uh, approaching the twins or has reached the twins and is shooting down birds that may be carrying messages. Really just anything to make sure that Tywin doesn't learn of this fake out before it works. I don't want to stress, I think what you said was clear, but just to be clear, the no one knows from the Rob side how to think of Walter Frey right now. And it's Rob's army that's basically shooting down the ravens that are leaving Walter Frey's. They don't want their position to be shared. Yeah, in case he were to warn Tywin, yeah. hey, the Starks are at my castle. We also get news, and I think it is from the Blackfish himself, that basically that that River Run is, is getting thrashed. Yeah, so we learned this in Tyrion's chapter. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we heard about this from the Lannister perspective, and now we're seeing the Starks get the same news. Edmure has lost his battle. He's been taken captive, and River Run is under siege. So like I was saying, this really just emphasizes the urgency. They need to cross, and they need to cross quickly if they're going to succeed. They also need to cross quickly because Tywin is marching on them. and He's currently a couple days away, but if they run out of time, they'll be stuck against the river, hammering an anvil, and get crushed by Tywin's forces. At the same time, Rob keeps saying, and Theon at one point suggests, why don't we just, you know, we have more men than Walder Frey does. Walder Frey has 4,000 men. We have almost 20,000. Why don't we just, just kill him if he won't let us through and take it? And Catelyn repeatedly tries to emphasize this is too secure of a location and trying to assault it 
even if you're successful, which you probably won't be, will just take too long. So you need to find another way to get through here. You need to use diplomacy and you need to go talk to him and negotiate your way through. And she has this quote uh, in her mind, did you teach him wisdom as well as valor, Ned? Did you teach him how to kneel? Which is once again, perfectly in line with her thoughts from last chapter, thinking through all of the different things that he needs to learn in addition to sword fighting and strength, uh, and hoping that he's picked up enough of those tools from Ned as well. That kind of political savviness that we were just talking about, Ned has not really displayed, but seemed to at least have in the Northern version of things. I don't want to fixate on something you said too, which is that sort of like eagerness that Theon brings in of saying like, hey, why don't we just take them? And Catelyn brings that reminder of basically saying like, this this man has held this for generations. This is not the first time somebody's had this thought, you know, Theon, what mm -hmm. you're thinking about, it, this, this, it's not going to work. And and I, there's even a part where, where Rob starts saying, well, maybe we could build, you know, rafts for our men to float. And it's like, yeah, but with, for all the weight that they're carrying and how many they are, it wouldn't be worth the time that they would right. need to put into that. And they just don't have the time. So with that said, I think we'd start moving into the second half of the chapter, which is now Catelyn starts to, they start to say, we need to figure out what Walder Frey wants. He's mm -hmm. going to exact a toll. We don't know what that cost is. Let's try to figure this out. Um, we have, they basically ride up to the twins. They, they get to the twins, they, you know, closer and encroach upon. And they're met by a small, uh, a small group of, of soldiers basically sent out from the phrase Mem members of yeah, the house. These are some the of the family. many kids. Yeah. I think one is the oldest son who himself is in his 60s or 70s or something. He's the like heir, yeah. Sir yeah. Stevron. Uh, and, and they ride out and they basically come to, to Rob's army and says, listen, like, fun to see you. Rob, why don't you come with us inside? Uh, our father wants to talk to you. Yeah, they, they're very curious as to why they're here and, uh, and would like Rob to come inside by himself and explain it. Uh, all the men on Rob's side basically freak out and say, what the hell are you talking about? Rob, don't you dare go in there because as soon as you do, you're his. Right. Like, period. That's, that's not going to... They also repeatedly emphasize, we really don't trust this guy in line with yeah. what Kat was saying, uh, but they do so in earshot of the various phrases that are there, which, you know, seems like a pretty stupid move. And, uh, and notably, while the phrase request for Rob to come in reads like a threat almost you know mm -hmm. it, it certainly is being interpreted correctly by them the phrase are much more polite in how they frame it than this reaction from rob's various lords you know they say come in we want to host you you'll come have dinner with us we'll chat about what it is you need and the reaction is very not sugar-coated at all no this guy can't be trusted he's gonna take you hostage and kill you you can't go in there period which i think you know just to move us ahead just another few paragraphs Basically, Catelyn volunteers as tribute, but but Catelyn says, "Don't worry, I'll go as as sort of a tribute for for Rob." Specifically, here. she speaks up because she realizes that the phrase are getting offended, and she needs to rescue this situation because if if they turn around, they say, "You know, screw you guys," and turn around and go back inside, then everybody in this camp dies. Uh, really underscoring how stupid it is of the various lords to have reacted so rudely without thinking. I will say, though, that Catelyn then goes inside. Uh, the phrase, leave one fray behind, is sort of saying, don't worry, like, like this mm -hmm. is our mark as well, so we'll, we'll swap back after. Um, but Catelyn goes inside, and, and we, we see very quickly that, first of all, Walder Frey really does, really does have a lot of progeny. I think yes. I underlined it. Um, 
that Catelyn's father had once said of Walder Frey that he was the only lord in the Seven Kingdoms who could field an army out of his breeches, uh, which I like to like. Yeah. And we actually, we really start to realize that the fact is, is that the man, the, the whole castle is filled with his children uh, from one style of life or another. Yeah, we, we get a, a rough count here um, because of the people who are in the, I don't know, it, it's not the throne room because he's not a king, but his receiving room. We have 20 living sons. Perwin, who was left outside, would make 21. 36 grandsons, 19 great-grandsons, along with all the daughters, granddaughters, and various bastards around the room. Uh, we also learn that he's 90 years old and on his eighth wife, who is only 16, and he's had kids with all eight of them, uh, which is how he ended up in this position. So just, you know, a real Mick Jagger kind of situation going on. <laughs> Um, we do find too that I think that that the concerns, the rudely voiced by those outside with Rob, uh, are are sort of well founded. While the invitation made to Rob outside was come and have dinner and let's chat with my father, uh, Walter Frey is quick to say like, "What the fuck do you want?" Like, like yeah. you know, he's he's not dicking around. He has no courtesy to him. I really enjoy him. You know, like throughout this, he's just funny. He's He's all barbs and insults. He's the epitome of the, the cranky old man who just doesn't care what you think of him anymore. Although Cat yeah. certainly indicates at multiple times that he never really did. Uh, so it's it, it's only gotten worse with age, I imagine. He's like the definition of salty. Yeah, um, absolutely he is. He's also like very aware of like what his, you know, what him continuing to survive means to all of his offspring. It's kind of a wonderful sort of like epic joke. That you know that 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 here is a man with so many people in his lineage, yet he refuses to let go of this mortal coil. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I just think that's kind of great. It's such a great undermining of the concept of legacy. He doesn't care about legacy. You know, you you can talk about his legacy being all over the place. He has has all these kids. They've married into all of these houses. He has fingers in every pot, and it certainly comes up over the course of this. But he doesn't care about that. He wants to do. He wants to be here. He wants to be alive and to hell with the rest of them. And he cracks a couple of jokes about you know Sir, Sir Stevron has been waiting to be heir for forty years, and uh, how funny is it that I just won't let him and I keep surviving? Uh, just like you're saying, very aware of, of exactly what he's doing and how he's making people feel. And I think aware is a good term and phrase to kind of continue with here too, because, you know, Catelyn is quick to point out like, hey, you know, you swore an oath to my father, you know, as they're talking about what do you want? And and she can't help but notice that he's, he's, he's pulled together his armies, if you will, but they have yet to move. Uh, and, and she says, you know, you swore an oath to my father. Why aren't you going? And he's quick to respond. You know, I also swore an oath to the crown. And Joffrey's the crown now too. In a, in a weird way, while Walder Frey is, I think, clearly a lord, he almost reflects the sort of attitude of a rich peasant rather mm -hmm. than that of the honorable lord. I have mine. I survived throughout different kingships and all of this. I'm not here for anybody but myself. It's me and mine. People yeah. play this Game of Thrones. I'm going to protect mine. Yeah, I love that. And this is this is what I was referencing earlier when you were talking about the quilt of various influences and obligations. The fact is, he has ties to a lot of different institutions. He has ties to the Riverlands by virtue of his house being there. And he's sworn to the Tullys on that basis. But he also has ties directly to the crown. And he owes allegiance there too. And, and from that perspective, Rob and the Tullys and the other river lords are all rebels. And so, you know, who is he to pick between them in the same way as he has 
people married into all sorts of houses that presumably pull him in different directions, including towards the Lannisters. So when you have all of those competing obligations and competing responsibilities, what value is the one that Catelyn is trying to throw at him? Why does that one take precedence over any of these others? I also really love what you were just saying about him being a, like a rich peasant, because there's so much bitterness that comes mm. through in this mm -hmm. chapter. We hear about it with respect to Tywin. We hear about it with respect to the Tullys, where this guy feels like he does not get the respect that he deserves as a fellow lord, and that these other lords are, are so high and mighty and above him that it's really clearly rubbed him the wrong way. And he's, he's cracking jokes about it. And he's taking shots about it, but it seems quite serious as well. I think... You know, we're getting close to the end of this chapter, and there there's sort of two major things that now happen towards the end of the chapter. One, I want to put a pin in, because I, I want to focus on that in a second. Uh, but before getting to that, Catelyn seems to have gone into this un with an understanding that Walder Frey wants his toll. Yes. What that toll is, is uncertain. And he starts to kind of get at it towards the end of the chapter. He talks about issues that he's had with others, but what he really, you know, this and that and sweet words and this, but what I really want to do is get rid of a daughter, marry people off. Yeah. That. Um, the specific he, issues he raises, he talks about having offered a daughter to marry Edmure through, you mm -hmm. know, offer with Hoster earlier. And Hoster was super nice about it, but ultimately said no. And I don't care if he's super nice to me. I want the political ties. I want to have one less mouth to feed. I want the... Uh, the, the ambition and the political prestige that comes from marrying into the prominent house of my area. And then similarly, he brings up a fostering deal that he had offered with Lysa, uh, right. where he would send two grandchildren, both named Walder, after him in exchange for little Robert and getting blown off by her. Of course, we know that that's because she's going to react very strongly to any person. attempt to take her kid away. Um, but he was super offended by that too. And it, it's just repeatedly this issue of people not treating him as though he's an equal, at least as he sees it. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to put it. I do want to come back to the fostering thing, because there's a big thing there that I, I didn't fully understand and I want to okay. get into. But with that yeah, we'll said, get to that after. the rest of the chapter, you know, basically... Uh, Catelyn sort of sees her in. She understands that he's looking for something and that it's now time to haggle about what the price of this toll is. Eventually, you know, the, the conversation sort of happens in the dark and Catelyn leaves the castle and returns to Rob and basically says, here's, here's what the cost is. And I'm, I'm not going to go, th there's a whole bunch of different stipulations here. A big thing is, is that at the end of this war, uh, Rob needs to marry one of one of the daughters he can have his pick of a, a fray daughter um mm -hmm. i think there is also a fostering thing that's tossed in here too but it's yeah, a so cost. It's the, yeah. it seems like it's the same two walders uh mm -hmm. are now going to go up to uh to winterfell, winterfell yeah and be with bran there um i think i think we should just quickly run through all of the aspects of Say, this yeah, yeah. negotiation uh so yeah like you said rob is going to have to marry one of the daughters after the fighting is done, but he'll get to choose who. Two of Walder's grandsons, we think the same ones, presumably are going to foster at Winterfell. Uh, Arya is going to have to marry his youngest son, Elmar, when they're of age, which Rob mentions Arya will absolutely hate, as we know. Uh, there is also a young Frey uh, direct son named Olivar, who will squire for Rob, which Rob is fine with, that's nothing. Um, and then uh, 
or she mentions it first, but you know, pretty importantly, they're not only going to get the cross, but they're going to take all of the fray men with them. The Freys will now join Rob's army. Uh, some of them, a handful will stay behind to hold the twins. Rob is going to leave some of his own med men led by Sir Helmand Tallhart uh, to help reinforce that group, but also keep an eye on Walter Frey, make sure he's, he's staying in line. Um, but they have just added a fairly significant set of soldiers to this army that they're marching away with. With all of that, Rob accepts it. And Catelyn's quick to point out, just internally to herself, that like it's good to see Rob standing up so strong uh, with this. It's, it's easy for a boy to have turned around and said, I can't handle this. I don't want to marry somebody I don't know. Rob seems to understand his political position here and that he needs to accept this. Yeah, with that said, and, and I agree with you. You know, I, I think the whole first half of the chapter was laying out the necessity and the importance of this, but it is to his credit that he doesn't flinch. And Kat has that same thought. You know, he takes it. He takes it like a man. He says, this is what I have to do to win, so I'm going to live with it. With that said, I want to go to this thing that we put a pen in, which is the fostering of kids. This is now the second or third time that this has come up, and I am mm -hmm. confused. Okay. We have heard before, I think the first time that we heard, so this is about John Aaron and Lysa, Lysa's kid, Robert, I think, right? Is his name? Who's the little yes. shit kid up in the Erie. Yes. Uh, you know, and wants to see the dwarf fly or whatever. Um, I think, I, if I remember correctly, the first time that we heard talk about this young Robert being fostered was the idea that, I think it was a Ned chapter, but, but Ned heard something along the lines of this kid having plans for this kid to be fostered with the Lannisters, yes. if I'm not mistaken. So we then heard, if, I'm not, if, if, I, if I remember correctly, we then heard this idea that he was going to be fostered with Stannis and not Lannisters, mm -hmm. I think. And then we heard now that he might have been fostered with the phrase, but instead is going to Stannis and not Lannisters. And I am confused because I thought these were all first per like first like uh, first person sources, direct sources, primary sources, right? Like it was a Lannister that said this, or it was Robert Baratheon himself that right. that said this. And and so I'm I'm super confused about this and its implications. What the hell does it matter when this kid gets fostered? Okay, so so let's get into that because uh, you're going to be annoyed to hear this, but this is a little bit of a mystery at this point. We have four instances of this topic coming up before now. Okay. Uh, and you're remembering them correctly. The first one is Ned gets told by Robert that Robert had planned, had arranged for the kid to go to Casterly Rock with the Lannisters. Robert himself says that. He says right. specifically he was frustrated with Lysa for taking the kid after John Aaron died because he, you know, that was a slap in the face to him. He had already arranged for the kid to go to Casterly Rock with the Lannisters. Uh, the topic comes up again in the conversation between Cersei and Jamie that Bran overhears, where they once again reference uh, fostering Robert at Casterly Rock, uh, and specifically refer to uh, to Robert being a hostage against her silence, um, presuming she, you know, if she had learned anything from John Aaron about what he was involved in. Obviously, at this time, this was all very cryptic, uh, but we've since gotten some answers there. But that that would have been a solution to that problem. And now that she's fled with the kid in hand, that makes her more of a risk. Right. The next time after that, that we hear about this came in was it up at the a Ned chapter, 
okay. where he's hearing he's doing research into the various leads in John Aaron's household in King's Landing. And one of the people that he spoke with was a stable boy that knew all sorts of gossip. And he kind of listed off a bunch of different things that this kid knew. One of them was the Lord was sending his boy to be fostered on Dragonstone. So this is the first time we hear of something that is not the Lannisters. Dragonstone, of course, being Stannis' seat. Stannis, right. And then the final time is Catelyn, who, you know, we have to assume has previously heard from Ned way back at the beginning of the book about the plan for Casterly Rock. When she is at the Eyrie with Lysa, she has a conversation right before the trial by combat with Maester Coleman, who was John Aaron's personal maester. He was in King's Landing with John Aaron and with Lysa and then came back with Lysa to, Lysa to the Eyrie says Stannis, or excuse me, John Aaron was planning to send the boy to Dragonstone for fostering, you know. Oh, but I'm speaking out of turn. Talon says, you're mistaken. It was Casterly Rock, not Dragonstone. And those arrangements were made after the hand's death without my sister's consent. Maester Coleman, there's the quote, the maesters had jerked so vigorously at the end of his absurdly long neck that he looked half a puppet himself. No, begging your forgiveness, my lady, but it was Lord John who, and then they get interrupted. So, I think the significance of this in this moment, and Catelyn follows up on it, which is why it stands out so much, is that she is now getting hearing from a second source that it was not the Lannisters, it was in fact Stannis who was going to foster this kid when it was arranged by John Aaron. Maybe at some later point after he died, Robert had Robert. separately arranged for Cast the Lannisters. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you were just asking, what's the importance? What are the takeaways here? What are your thoughts? Why is John Aaron trying to send him to Dragonstone? Why did that plan get disrupted and not go through? Was it, you know, Lysa? Was it Robert or the Lannisters putting a stop to that? Um, we've heard a couple of different explanations for, for why fostering may happen, but I want to get your thoughts. I, yeah, I have no idea. Like, as I usually say, I, I think that the most direct understanding comes from Cersei and that sort of earlier mention, you know, when, when they were like overheard by, uh, by Bran, right? Like, mm -hmm. like it would make sense. We want to foster this kid at Casterly Rock because that gives us huge leverage, you know, who, for whatever it was that John Aaron was digging into. If right. Which we now know is the fact right. that Joffrey is not Roberts. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's a possibility that Cersei maneuvered Robert to try and make that happen and try and prevent Robert the kid from going elsewhere. Too many Roberts in this conversation. <laughs> uh, but to prevent him from going to Stannis. I want to throw out there something that I mentioned a while back to you, uh, and, and just to remind it and bring it back into the picture, which is, as Ned has so steadfastly maintained, Stannis is now the legitimate heir to the kingdom among anybody who believes that Joffrey is illegitimate. He is Robert's eldest sibling, eldest brother. So he would be next in line if Robert has no legitimate male children, which he does not. Uh, John Aaron, we think, figured that out. We're pretty sure that he knew that that was the result, which is why Lysa is a risk to the Lannisters in case she knows as well. But fostering your son with Stannis, who has a daughter, uh, puts you in a very significant political position in the event Stannis takes the throne. Yeah, I'm, it, it, you know, one of the things that throws me off a little bit, not not in a confused way, but a sort of like, oh, that's tough, is that Robert Baratheon is such an oaf and not didn't come off very strategic at all. So it's hard to know if Robert Baratheon was 
trying to play some type of game here and that's why it was better Lannister than Stannis or not or god knows what mm -hmm. I I get that about positioning you know one's child with the true heir to the throne and what that would mean but I don't know at the same time it's it's hard to juggle how much knowledge we as the reader have from all these different perspectives and what was going on in a very like individual characters mind and role and yeah. that sort of thing absolutely i'm just theorizing but yeah we've yeah. talked so much over the course of this book about cersei's motivations and where she was coming from and why she was acting certain ways and we've gotten a lot of clarity on that front over the last 10 to 15 chapters or so um, but one of the things that kept showing up that we didn't have clear insight into was her fear that the Baratheon brothers in particular were moving against her. Uh, and certainly that that is something pointed to uh, by Ned, by Lysa as motive for murdering John Aaron if the Lannisters were the one that did, ones that did that. You know, we obviously have, have evidence pointing in different directions there. But so this is potentially another piece of that puzzle of showing John Aaron and Stannis working together at odds to the interests of the Lannisters, the much Lannisters. in the same way as Ned was trying to later on with significantly less success. I got to add to all of this too, is that I think that a funny backdrop to all this political intrigue and trying to position one's offspring in one direction or another is just how savagely the Lannisters seem to be dominating the violence right now. Like, mm -hmm. like, you know, we were just talking about at the beginning, right, of this episode of our of our podcast episode, you know, is is, you know, Tywin is wreaking havoc, you know, where he's going there, he's marching up this way, Rob's going to try to do this sort of faint and the fake out type thing. And, you know, they've taken over the Lannisters have taken over King's Landing completely like, you know, it's, it's for all the drama and intrigue, I, I only wonder if like, even if things had gone you know, if John Aaron wasn't murdered, would that right. really have changed much of anything at this point? Like, Yeah, unclear. I mean, they certainly had a lot of plans in place and have executed a lot of those plans. So it, it's tough to think of the, think about the counterfactual there. Yeah. But, you know, I don't really have anything for you at the end of this. We don't really end on a cliffhanger here. Rob marches through. That's how the chapter ends. So, you know, I don't, I don't know if I have questions for where that's headed. We'll just have to keep reading and find out. Yeah, agreed. Uh, he's continuing to move forward. The big question on my mind is just the role of time. How long will it take Rob and his army to get where they're going and what will happen during that time? You know, things are won, things are lost. So it'll be interesting to see where we end up and when. Absolutely. On to John, yeah? Yeah, John 8. Are you sure? How can I even trust you anymore? You know, maybe I'm wrong again. We'll see. This is why we need people to email us things. I need to get corrected when I get things wrong. It shouldn't have taken most of a book for all of these internet nerds listening to us nerds to tell me that I messed something up. Maybe all our foreign listeners are just listening to learn English because we speak so good. <laughs> Oof. Don't use that one. <laughs> all right, here we are. John speaks so good. Or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, this is a silly thing, but I'm pretty sure the last John chapter where we left off was him fighting a White Walker, like like a, yeah. like one of the others. Not the zombies, that's, not one of yeah. the others. Yeah, right, right, right. Which they're still the same to me, to be honest. I know we've talked about this before, but like, that's fair. I mean, ninety nine percent of what we've seen is the reanimated corpses rather than exactly. the others. We we just saw them for that one brief moment in the prologue. Uh, 
with that said, we start. It's a conversation. This is clearly some, a little bit of time after that's that that whole fight happened. Yeah, uh, and we start with John and with Lord Mormont, and and Lord Mormont sort of just saying like, "How's your how's your hand?" Basically, we know that John got burnt a little bit. He used fire to kill these White Walker others. Yeah, I mean, not a little bit. We're we're learning the extent of it here. That last chapter kind of ended with him throwing fire at the guy, and, and that we learned worked. Uh, but he burnt himself really badly. He didn't notice it in the moment, but he grabbed flaming drapes to throw at this. Uh, and it went pretty deep. You know, it, it, his, he describes the injury, cracked red skin, oozing fluid, fearsome blood blisters, but he's going to be okay. Uh, we learned it's, it just hurts a lot. Uh, you burnt. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, the, the, the majority of this chapter, if not, if not really the, the solid first half of it, is really a conversation between him and Lord Mormont. It, it is, and it's a lot of sort of like catching up on some situations and things that are going on. I'm, you know, I'm going to kind of broad brush it, and I'm happy to get specific if there are things that you want to go on. But basically, okay. Lord Mormont's very grateful for what John did and recognizes what John was able to accomplish in killing these, this other, uh, this reanimated person, if you will. We find out that the other body that they had brought in also reanimated and was eventually, I think, hacked into tiny, tiny pieces after killing two or three men that were guarding him. Yeah, I uh, I need to take this moment because we had an entire episode dedicated to you being right, you think, uh, and just point out that you specifically predicted last John chapter. Uh, I just can't imagine we're going to start next chapter and hear like this other dead body also went on a rampage and killed a bunch of people and let me tell you that one aged like milk on a hot <laughs> summer day oh but it's only like two sentences devoted to that character like, it's okay. not important but it's important to me oh, that you fair, be wrong fair, fair. Aged like milk. <laughs> one of one of the people he kills though uh it's worth noting is a guy we have met sir jeremy ricker and mm. he's the one who has been he's been in leadership positions he's been kind of filling in alongside in in Benjamin's spot right, so this yeah. is an important guy and so his loss uh hits a little harder just you know we know this guy he's been involved in the decision making and is no longer with us right uh we also find out a little not only are we hearing about what just happened with this other that that this reanimated corpse if you will we find out about John's hand, we find out how grateful Lord Mormont is, but we also are starting to get some news. Uh, we get a little bit of an update about Sir Barristan Selmy. Yes. Who we last Yet saw another failure for you. I'm sorry, I'm hammering you here. <laughs> I don't even remember what I said about this guy. What do I, like, did I? You did thought I they were going to capture him. They were, you were like, yeah, there's no way he gets out of here. Well, uh, <laughs> it's a dumb thing that George R. R. Martin did to say that this one dude escaped all he of this two watchmen he's like one of the greatest sword fighters of all time and he killed two watchmen that's not plausible to you all i know is that there was like six watchmen that went after uh aria's you know lake dancer or whatever river dancer well they weren't prepared joffrey ordered them and they were like oh shit we got to go after this oh Anyways. no my job is to be a watchman and a guard i guess i'm being ordered to do my job blah, blah, blah. Uh, the point is, is that he escaped yeah he escaped up, and he is now wanted for treason uh so yet another red mark for michael fair negative one million points i uh, we also have this this sort of uh i'm just trying to do it in the in the right order here but there's there's one thing that comes up and i think i'm getting a little yeah i am getting out of order i'll say it more in order as a gift lord Vermont bestows a gift to john 
Uh, and it's really awesome. It's a sword uh, game of swords, game of swords. Um, but uh, it is a beautiful long sword is Valerian steel. Uh, Lord Mormont's put work into it. Uh, it has a beautiful sort of wolf's head on it in, uh, uh, what's it called? Sort of like, like uh, to, to, to sort of honor ghost, his dire wolf. Yes. Uh, and it took the place of, uh, it had been a bear which is the Mormont sigil. This had been their, their family sword that he is passing along to him. It got damaged in the fire. And so he redid it with a white wolf with red eyes uh, for Ghost and for the Stark sigil. Apparently it was originally Jorah Mormont's sword and was taken away from him when uh, he, what was it, got caught? Trading. He fled, yeah. yeah. So he, he got caught oh, selling poachers to a slaver and he mm -hmm. fled, and, uh, and and it wasn't taken from him, crucially. I actually think this is a really interesting character moment for Jorah. He left it behind. Uh, he knew he was going into exile and fleeing his family, and rather than taking this family heirloom with him and kind of compounding the shame that Lord Commander Mormont talks about here, he left it behind when he crossed the sea. John has this sort of internal moment where he continues to struggle with being a bastard uh, while he receives this. He realizes that he's receiving uh sort of lord mormont's son's sword this is mm -hmm. his family's sword and he he goes on his own sort of like internal fantasy of having always dreamed about receiving ned stark's ice sword that we had met i think in chapter one yeah uh in the brand, brand right like uh, yeah but brand one yeah also valerian steel and, and being honored that and, and and he becomes shamed by this memory he first of all that sword wouldn't have been his to begin with second he's a bastard and he wouldn't have received it and, you know, it's, it's a fantasy. And he realizes that he's having a fantasy uh, about this ice, this Ned Stark sword. And he's, he struggles. He struggles with this idea of taking somebody else's sword that's not his. That said, Lord Mormont is quick to turn around and say, shut the hell up. I'm giving yeah. you this. You saved my <laughs> life. Like, I do not care about what you feel about this. <laughs> I love the way he says it, too. I, <laughs> sword's small payment for a life. Take it, I'll hear no more of it. Is that understood? It's just absolute, like, I'm brooking no argument here. Yep. Get out of my face. You take the present. You don't even say thank you and fuck off. <laughs> uh, th there is a, a comment made here that I, I've spoken to this before, and I want to just bring it up again because it annoys me. Um, Lord Mormont makes this sort of, like, like offhanded comment being like, fire killed the others. We should have remembered. <laughs> Uh -huh. The long night that used to, the winter that the been here before, the long night. And I'm kind of like, man, you would think that like of all the information kept and passed down from the last time this happened, like how to kill the enemy would have been like etched on the walls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, John had that instinct in the moment because of the stories he's heard. I think the problem isn't that the knowledge has been lost, which is also what Lord Commander Mormont is pointing at here, but rather that people don't think of it as knowledge anymore. They think of it as myth, you know, like, like it would be like, uh, if all of a sudden you walked out of your apartment tomorrow and there was a basilisk that was real. And after all of this happened, you were like, ah, shit, I can't believe I didn't remember all the myths about how you're supposed to kill a basilisk. Like, no, of course that wouldn't occur to you in the moment these things haven't existed or don't exist or have never existed. And, uh, and so I think that that's more what he's talking about rather than simply yeah. they didn't okay. know it. That's fair. Um, we find out there's a bit of change in our, uh, our characters here. Uh, he, John is told by Lord Mormont that he can be trained by Sir Andrew Tarth, 
about <laughs> how to use this sword. It turns out that Sir Andrew Tar Tarth is replacing for the moment Sir Alistair Thorne, who's been a real thorn in the ass to yes. John since he got there. Uh, Alistair Thorne was sent by Lord Mormont to King's Landing with the ripped off hand of one of these others. Yes. Uh, ideally to show it with Joffrey and ideally not be ignored. We have a problem up here, come help us. Yeah, uh, and that's in part to prevent any further incidents like John trying to stab the shit out of Sir Alistair, uh, which immediately proceeded, you know, that was two chapters ago. So we've had a big interim moment. Uh, Lord Commander Mormont also has a great response here. Don't think this means I approve of that nonsense in the common hall. Valor makes up for a fair amount of folly, but you're not a boy anymore, however many years you've seen. That's a man's sword you have there, and it will take a man to wield her. I'll expect you to act the part henceforth. Uh, so just making clear, you know, we are still a military order. We still have military discipline. You need to stop being an idiot, even if your heroics managed to get you off the hook this past time, which I think is a good reminder for uh, somebody with uh, the hero's traits of, I'm going to go off and do my own thing yeah, and ignore orders and save the world. Good thing for him to be told right here. Um, that actually moves us really well into the second half of this chapter, and I want to kind of bridge us there. Did you have anything to say about this first half with Lord Mormont? Well, uh, what I was going to say kind of links us into this, which is that we learned that John had, had heard from Sam. Yes. Uh, is that what you were going to go with, too? Yeah, 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 exactly. But go yeah. ahead, why don't you take us? So, so, so they have this conversation. John is asking about the letter that came from the South, hoping it was news about Ned. In fact, it was this news about Sir Barristan. And uh, Lord Commander Mormont complains that they only really get told what the people in the South want them to know. And John thinks to himself, and you only tell me what you want to know, which is even less, because he had not been told by Lord Commander Mormont about Rob marching south off to war. Instead, he had learned about that secretly from Sam, who spent the whole time crying about how he wasn't supposed to be telling John, but he had learned about it because he helps Maester Eamon with the Ravens. Right, because Maester Eamon is blind as a bat. Um, that said, as John, and just to bridge us right from, from part A to part B of this chapter, John leaves Lord Mormont. Outside are all his friends who already know that he was getting this sword through one method or another. Uh, and they're all like, let me see the sword. Okay, great. It's so beautiful. Amazing. They're such friends. And then Sam kind of like, like sheepishly shows up and says, you know, uh, Maester Amon, is it Amon, right? Like, uh, yeah. you know, Maester Amon wants to, wants to see you. I, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And John says, you told him that you told me what you shouldn't yeah. have. This man cannot believe. keep a secret. Uh, and Sam says, oh God, it's like, he knows everything. It doesn't matter. But basically John's about to go see Maester Amon. He assumes to get some, some, a, a little bit of a tongue, a tongue lashing. Yeah. For, you know, getting Sam to tell him things. There's a, a brief exchange where Sam is trying to apologize. And it wasn't my fault. I was afraid. I think he knew he sees things no one else sees. John points out forcefully disgusted. He's blind. <laughs> which I don't think that's what Sam meant by seeing here, John, but, you know, fair retort nonetheless. Um, John gets to Maester Eamon, and I'm going to talk about this sort of high level because, you know, I think getting into the specifics gets a little boggy, like bogs down a little bit. But basically, I thought this was kind of cute, is that Maester Eamon kind of gives John a little bit of a lecture. Mm. And he says, you know, there's a reason why we don't share everything, why, why we take vows here, why, why we have to understand that this is our family here now and that, that the things that happen outside of here are not our concern. Mm 
And I, I like this a lot. Mace Raymond goes into, uh, you know, a situational, you know, kind of story saying, you know, what do you do when it comes down between honor and family? You know, if this is what we have to kind of go into, which I just thought was cute because it's literally what Ned is facing in his dungeon right now. Right. Yeah, the parallels are very clearly intentional. You can talk about George R. R. Martin's subtlety again, mm-hmm. if you wish. Um, or lack thereof. But it's also just been such a central question of the book kind of as a whole, central to Ned's story and certainly central to John's as well. Uh, and we we hear this brought up we, with respect to the vows that John takes. We got a kind of intro of, of what it is people who are taking these vows to these orders are giving up with Sir Barristan last week where he talks about, you know, I never got married. I gave up my betrothal. I gave up my lands. I gave up my family for this. How are you taking it away from me? And Maester Eamon, just a couple of chapters later, reemphasizes it. Do you know why we take these vows? Why we don't have family? Why we don't have any kids? John says, no, I never really thought about it. And Maester Eamon says, so they will not love, for love is the bane of honor, the death of duty. Uh, and that's, that's the whole choice. This is exactly what Benjamin was trying to emphasize for John way back at the beginning of this when he was making the decision. Are you willing to give up what these things mean? Are you allowed to put aside your brothers in exchange for your adopted brothers for the Night's Watch and serve them instead of what you need from the South? I, and I like this part in the chapter and, and, it's, and we'll get to how it kind of comes to a conclusion in a second. I will say that it's not lost on me that Benjamin was once like, you know, visiting his brother in Winterfell and they still had a right. relationship. You know, it's like, okay, like like maybe it's how they're teaching it to this kid or I don't think disagree with it, but but it seems a little flexible. Yeah, uh, it certainly seems like the principle of the matter is a little more idealistic than in practice. We've certainly seen Southern rivalries make their ways up to the wall already to the extent that Sir Alisard exhibited some hatred of John because he was sent to the wall effectively by Ned for fighting for the Targaryen side instead of uh, for the Stark Baratheon coalition, um, that that was a punishment he got. So maybe that's shined through in some ways. We also have references in this chapter from Lord Commander Mormont of the contact he has with his family and the ties he still has there. So, you know, I think as much as Maester Aemon is laying out the ideal of what it should be, there is some level of relationship nonetheless uh, that this can't be done perfectly. And at the end of the day, that's where Maester Eamon lands. I can't tell you what choice to make. You have to make the choice yourself uh, because you're the one who has to live with it, whether to desert and if you choose to desert living with that choice or to not and to abandon the issues your family is facing down south right now. There's sort of this grand reveal that happens at the end. And I'll say, as it leads up to that, we get a little bit of a parallel with Rob as well, Rob Stark, uh, in the sense of, you know, the, the, all of us in our youth, as we're kids, as we're growing up, thinks that our, what we're going through is unique in the mm-hmm. world. And as we saw with the chapter of Catelyn's chapter just now, you know, right, Rob, this isn't the first time, or right, Theon, this isn't the first time somebody's thought to, like, try to lay siege to the Twins Towers here, you know, it's, it's not, it, it, this isn't, just because it's your first time thinking it doesn't mean it's the first time it's thought about, and this is a lot of what Maester Eamon's saying, he's like, listen, you're having these feelings, and John's even saying, no one knows what I'm going through right now, Yeah. and, and Maester Eamon's like, listen, like, like you, you, you haven't listened to me at all, and we find out that Maester Eamon, his last name, Dan, Targaryen, 
Dun, dun, dun. Uh, although I can say, while John seems shocked by this, I do not care. No? <laughs> like, I didn't find this that the, to be. This like, is the first non-Danny Viserys. This is the first Targaryen we've met, other than the Danny chapters. I mean, this is a pretty big deal. I guess so, but I will say that he is so ingratiated into the 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 Night's Watch. He, like he is exactly what he's saying. I don't. I find him to be much more Night's Watch than anything Targaryen, and that's what he's saying. I couldn't go there when all these battles were going on. I couldn't go there. Right. You know, I was up here, and it's like, yeah, you are up there. That's where you are. Look. Yeah, and he's a billion years old now, so this yeah, it's not like so. he's going to be a. You know, he's not going to be the king that deposes Joffrey, uh, sword in hand. He's he's very old. He's blind. Um, it, it's not about that from that perspective, but it is interesting to get this background on him uh, and on the Targaryen family as well. He says, three times the gods saw fit to test my vows. Once when I was a boy, once in the fullness of my manhood, and once when I had grown old. Uh, that last choice was as cruel as the first, despite how old he was, because he heard the ruin of his house. Everyone was being killed. They cut down my brother's poor grandson and his son and even the little children, referring to the Mad King, Rhaegar, and Rhaegar's kids. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to see. I mean, this is exactly what you were just saying. These are the ties that make it that much harder in practice to implement the truths of the vows. Aemon is still tearing up at the thought of this. And having had this happen to him 15 years ago, however many decades after he first took the black, however many decades after he first became a maester, which also requires relinquishment of these titles and things of that nature, it's still affecting him this much. And it really just hammers home how hard he knows that choice is and how hard it is for John and and how John, you know, what John is struggling with and, and how he needs to come to that conclusion. I really love the end end of this chapter. You know, his reveal that he's a Targaryen is like like three sentences before the end. Uh, but his following couple sentences, I think, are very succinct and, and really well written and well conveyed, which is basically, listen, I'm not going to tell you to stay or go, but you're going to have to choose. You're either here or you're not. Like, like, it's not for you to ask what the Ravens are bringing about other things. Rob will go and attack things. You know, Lannisters will rise up or fall down. If you're here, you're here. Get with it. And uh, and I think that it's it's an echo of what we just heard. I uh, I uh, what's his name Mormont say earlier in the chapter too. Listen, man, you're doing great, but like tighten up. Yeah, you're here. Yeah, absolutely. I want to uh, focus in just specifically on some of the lecture that Maester Eamon gives because it, it really has some beautiful writing from George R. R. Martin here that I really enjoy and also leads me into the questions, the plot-related questions that I have for you here. Uh, but the, the lecture really starts with Mr. Eamon making the connection, the parallel to Ned very explicit. He says, you know, if your father had to choose between honor and love, what would he do? And John hesitates, he goes straight to, he fathered a bastard. So honestly, right. I don't know. Ned Stark, the pure embodiment of honor, the one who cares about that over everything else, did dishonor himself for love in some fashion. Uh, but he nonetheless says he would do whatever was right, no matter what. And so this is this is how Eamon launches into the speech. Then Lord Eddard is a man in 10,000. Most of us are not so strong. What is honor compared to a woman's love? What is duty against the feel of a newborn son in your arms or the memory of a brother's smile? We are only human and the gods have fashioned us for love. That is our great glory and our great tragedy. And, you know, what a 
what a perfect distillation of a concept that has been central to every story in the history of the world. Mm. Uh, like, like you can see this across everything, that conflict between love and honor and duty and the way that those things intersect with each other and point you in the same direction or in opposite directions. It's, it's the human heart in conflict with itself. It is very much so all of those various themes. And, you know, I, I take your prior criticisms about George R. R. Martin laying it out explicitly because the chapter does end with saying, John, make the choice, honor or love. And certainly we have that exact same choice presented to Ned. We talked last time, what do you think Ned is going to do? Uh, and I have to ask the question again here, where do you think John is headed with this? Um, you know, we've talked before about the broad strokes of his story and whether he's going to go run off and be the pain in the ass hero who brings it on himself. You know, is this his opportunity to do that? Is he going to go try and join up with Rob and fight on behalf of his imprisoned father? Or is he going to stick around? You know, I think that of all the characters that we're getting to experience right now, especially from the Stark perspective, right? Not, not the Tyrions, not the you know, Joffrey or whatever it is, but John, I think, is where he needs to be as a character. Whereas everybody else is kind of trying to figure out how to be okay with where they are. I, I don't, you know, looking further ahead. Yeah. I can see John becoming sort of the striking out on his own and becoming a hero. He gives up the night's watch. He takes, you know, re revokes his vows or whatever it is. And, and recants his vows. And yeah, I, I could see that further down the road, but I think that we're, what's going to lead to that is a, well, it's sort of like like becoming a man type of montage, right? He uh -huh. will stay and become a soldier of the Night's Watch. He will learn the things that are supposed to be learned there. Discipline and honor and all of this and cutting off relations. And, and I think he'll make his name there for a good amount of time. And I think that it will elevate his character in a way that the other characters that we've recently been experiencing don't have the opportunity to. Right. Uh, you know, in a way that Rob could have really done if the war hadn't broken out and if his dad just remained hand of the king and and rob stark you know stayed as head of winterfell and had to deal with the right. politics of he wasn't afforded that and i think that that i i wonder if to answer your question with a non-answer i wonder if the other characters will fall victim to their lack of incubation in their situations right but you think john will have that incubation i think so or continue to we're already yeah, seeing yeah, some yeah, of it so. certainly okay well we'll have to find out and we will eventually, because now we're going to go to Daenerys some number. Yep, Daenerys. Uh... <laughs> God, don't you uh... prepare? <laughs> kind of. Uh... <laughs> yeah, Daenerys 7 uh, is our next chapter and the last one that we're covering this week. Yeah, it is a decently quick chapter. Yes. Um, it starts at the end of a battle. Mm-hmm. I do not know what this battle is. They talk about it later, but it doesn't, I don't, I don't know. I don't remember. It didn't really stand out to me terribly. Like, yeah, no, it's, it's, happened. it's fairly simple, frankly, which is part of why this chapter is so short. This isn't part of some broader conflict, but we last left off with Danny uh, after the assassination attempt had happened with Drogo saying, all right, that's it. I'm going to the seven kingdoms. I'm going to kick the crap out of this guy that's trying to kill my wife, my wife. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, to do that, I'm going to need to go get some slaves and get some ships and go from there. So this is step one of that plan. They have marched south through uh, 
the Dothraki Sea, where they had been before, from, from the capital city through the Dothraki Sea. And now they have come on the lands, lands of who they call the Lamb Men, the Lazarine, which is just other people. We got this description from Danny that, you know, once upon a time she would have thought they looked the same as the Dothraki, and now they look totally foreign to her. To her. Uh, you can imagine that that's probably echoed by all of the other Westerners they come into contact with. But these are, rather than the nomadic, warlike uh, Mongol horde that the Dothraki are, these are a peaceful, agrarian, uh, grain-growing people who just live on the edge of this, and so are kind of a constant target for the Dothraki in their raiding. Uh, like we said, we, we enter this chapter at the end of the battle. The Dothraki have savaged these people. Uh, yeah, it's really horrifying. Like, uh, you know, yeah. we spent so much time with the Dothraki getting to know them as a people and kind of removing that veneer of savage barbarian foreigners that Danny had at the beginning. And now we see the flip side of that. This is a martial people. They base everything on strength, on battle, on ability to win these fights. And it, it is just, everything is bloody and bleeding and screaming and horrifying to leave this chapter off because that is the end result of a society that operates that way, much as Westeros does as well. And I'll add to your list of adjectives rapacious. I mean, like it's a, we've we've heard about this in tale of the Dothraki, but the the war is over, and now they will rape all the women. Yes. Um, this chapter, in in terms of specifics, I don't find terribly fascinating. There are some high level things that I want to go over and point at. It felt like to me that this chapter really had one, two, two, if not three so three solid sort of like 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 plot points to convey and to, to for us to take and move forward with mm -hmm. um the first is a comment that that Daenerys makes to herself early early on in this chapter this is after she sees some of the Dothraki raping some of the women she's sort of watching you know this this vulgarity happen around her and she thinks to herself that she has to stay strong, that this is war, this is what it looks like, this is the price of the Iron Throne. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a wonderful contrast to a lot of that sort of like, you know, laughable honor that, that we see from Ned Stark all the time, laughable in the sense that it's so highfalutin that it's, it's disassociated from reality, it's just disconnected. Uh, whereas here Daenerys seems to, to have a sense of honor, but also understands that blood has to be, she wants the throne. And that's going to cost lives. There is See, going to be violence. I would extend that beyond Ned here to Westerosi sure. society as a whole. Yeah. What we're seeing here is the violence that underlies both the Dothraki society and the Westerosi society. And for the Dothraki society, in a reflection of our real world, since it's being done by foreigners who look different and speak different and act different, that is fully on display. These are savages. These are horrifying. And that was Danny's first reaction. It was Viserys's reaction the whole time he was with them. We heard this description from Illyrio. Uh, but the same violence and the same gore and and fighting and military aspects underlie Westerosi society too. It's just that they've capped it with this idea of honor and with all the frills and the colors and the sparkling and, and sunlight wonder that Sansa loves and Sansa sees. You play at it. You have tournaments. I can't imagine the Dothraki having tournaments, but 
but it is a necessary step for the Westerosi to keep this side of things out of sight so that they can be accustomed and comfortable so that somebody like Catelyn, who lives within that society and has no critiques of it, has no hate for it, can ignore that that's what war means, that that is what her power and her authority and her position in the hierarchy of Westeros society is built on. That is how these people gain power to begin with, and that is how they hold on to power after the fact. And it's specifically that hypocrisy that we hear criticized so strongly from Sander Clegane when he's talking about why he doesn't want to be a knight. Be a knight. And, yeah. and so this is just the flip side of that that really brings it to the surface and throws it in our face. This is what it is, whether it's the Westerosi doing it or the Dothraki doing it, this is what it looks like. I'll say it reminds me of something I heard about New York versus California is that like both both of the populations are going to be like cursing you. I uh, you know they're, they're going to like talk shit about you, but at least New York does it to your face at the bus stop, yeah. whereas like California, they just like go back to their, their house and then do it there. Yeah, there's something more honest about this. And there's certainly something more honest about the way Danny is thinking about it. You can't imagine really any of the Westerosi characters we've met, maybe with the exception of somebody like Tywin, who is thought of as cold and harsh and horrible. Mm. Uh, you can't imagine any of them thinking this is the cost. This is what it takes for me to win, for me to be in power. Certainly, you can't imagine Ned thinking about it in terms of uh, putting Stannis on the throne after this, that this is what it's going to look like. Um, on the flip side, the trauma of coming face to face with that in Robert's rebellion has clearly fucked him up really badly. Uh, and so to a certain degree, he's trying to hide from that. Um, this leads us to sort of a next step for Danny here, which is the second of the three plot points uh, mm -hmm. that I think is important, which is after understanding this and accepting it, she then realizes that she cannot stand the sound of these women being raped. Yes. And she she does sort of a, what I think is a, a rather bold, you know, queen-like move. Mm -hmm. And and what I mean to say here is that she she she's not just the wife of Khal Drogo. She really understands and thinks of herself and, and considers herself as a queen of these people. Yes. Uh, and she understands a little bit of the power that comes with that. And so she starts to say, you see that woman being raped? I claim her as my slave now. You see that woman that's being raped? I claim her as my slave now. And this is how she decides, she kind of finds this little bit of a loophole. The men start to say, you know, like, wait a second, this is what we do. And she says, yes, but you have to honor the call. You have to honor me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that's great. I, the second plot point of this that I want to get to is something that Jorah Mormont says. She turns to him and says, go stop the rapes. Tell them that these are going to be my people. And Jorah says, uh, you know, as you command, the knight gave her a curious look. You are your brother's sister in truth. Viserys? She did not understand. No, he answered. Rhaegar. And he galloped off. And you know what I wrote here? What? You can't read it, but it says, Rhaegar hates rape. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, that's certainly one thing that Jorah could have meant. Um, we've seen him make this comparison before about leadership qualities specifically, which is what you were just pointing to with Danny. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting to see her assert an authority that, you know, we don't have the precedent, we don't know any other Dothraki societies, but that from what we've seen, it sure seems like women do not have. We have yeah. the Doge Kaleen, we have the Crones, who certainly hold some level of religious authority in the central location, but we have not met any Dothraki women other than Danny's handmaidens, who are effectively her slaves. Uh, so the concept of a Khaleesi exerting authority in this sense uh, 
seems to be a pretty novel thing that Danny's doing. And she even has a moment in here where she thinks, oh shit, did I go too far? Is Drogo even going to back me up on this? So, you know, I, I take your point that there is a specific to this situation, but there is also a broader thing that Jorah could be referencing. And we, we do not get an explanation from him in terms of what he meant here. He just kind of leaves it floating. I will say as a unfounded, you know, anything sort of thought, but I do wonder if the idea of Rhaegar raping, you know, Liana, Liana, mm-hmm. start. Yeah, Liana. Uh, I wonder if that became an idea planted in his mind much more than a, a reality he discovered. In Robert's. Yeah, in Robert Baratheon's mind. Yeah. But neither here nor obviously Ned stood by him too. You know what it, it couldn't have been just like yeah. one. You know, I, I I take your point. Uh and I, I think it's worth exploring because we just have a lot of indications from the text, certainly from Robert's personality. The idea of a woman he's betrothed to choosing someone else does not seem to be a concept he would be able to wrap his head around. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's, he is arrogant. He is cocky. He is, he knows that he's great. And, you know, he's the jock of the society who, you know, swaggering around high school. And of course she loves me. And of course I love her. And we do get some indications that that's not really based in who she is. And, uh, and if he doesn't have an accurate knowledge of who she is as a person, it's entirely plausible that she you know, runs off to be with somebody else. And he says, oh, she must have been violently stolen because there's no way she would run out on our fairy tale love with the greatest guy who's ever existed like that. I like that. Robert Baratheon, the letter jacket king. Um, I think that's exactly right. So all of this is happening and, and she, she eventually gets to, you know, all of this happens on her path to Khal Drogo. Uh, she's going to meet up with him and, and you know, see how he fared. She hears from Jorah Mormont that, that he's fine, a couple scrapes. Uh, she gets to Khal Drogo and, you know, on, on the, th- this conversation about the raped women and all this sort of comes up. And I, I'm trying to remember, I, I don't think there's any big conclusion from it, right? He doesn't like counter her he lets her kind of do this i think so he's specifically excited about it and you know this goes back to conversations we've had surrounding their sex life throughout the entirety of their story he seems to be a little abnormal in the dothraki sense in that he is really excited about having this strong woman that her strength reflects his strength in some some fashion and that he it goes along with that And so she gets there and and one of the men that she interrupted or several of them comes and complains to his uh, blood riders who who then raise it with him. uh, And his response is specifically, look at how great she is. Uh, Let me find this. Yeah, here it is. Uh, They complain about it. It gets translated to Drogo. He asks him what's going on. Danny told him what she had done in his own tongue, tongue so the call would understand her better. Her words simple and direct. When she was done, Drogo was frowning. This is the way of war. These women are our slaves now to do with as we please. It pleases me to hold them safe, Danny said, wondering if she had dared too much. If your warriors would mount these women, let them take them gently and keep them for wives. Give them places in the Kalasar and let them bear you sons. Uh, again, his, his blood riders react with incredulously. This is ridiculous. Uh, does the horse breed with the sheep? And Danny turns to him and says, the dragon feeds on horse and sheep alike. Caldrogo smiled. See how fierce she grows. It is my son inside her, the stallion who mounts the world, filling her with his fire. Ride slowly, Kotho. If the mother does not burn you where you sit, the sun will trample you into the mud. So he's, he's 
confused yeah. as to what she's doing. But the fact that she's showing up these strong military men who are under him only reflects how great he is to have this wife, which I think is a really interesting dynamic for them to have in this society that doesn't seem to have any consideration of that at all. Yeah. Um, I'll say, I know we're not at the end of the chapter, but I will say that I have no predictions on this at all. I could okay. see this being a consolidation of a strong king with a very strong queen. I could see this fomenting uprising with from within the ranks and, and you know, deteriorating away at, at Khal Drogo's sort of presence. That right. said, the man's a badass. I, like, like it, it's, it's hard in the society as we understand the Dothraki, like, I assume if anybody has a beef with their king, it comes down to a battle. And right. he is he is a a fierce man. <laughs> like if he wants a he is yeah. not an easy man to uh to, to conquer. It's literal in this context, in terms of, you know, if you want it, come and take it, fight me for it. Yeah. Um, but there's some interesting political insights here. I, I've referenced this podcast a couple of times on here, but I was listening through the Revolutions podcast, which mm -hmm. is a history podcast going through these things. And there's a lot of conversation about how reform works and whether it can reform in societies can counter growing revolutionary spirits or feed into them. And there's an ongoing debate among the more conservative elements of societies about, you know, do you give them a little bit so as to prevent it from exploding or does giving them a little bit then snowball? There are examples of both happening throughout history. And what you're pointing to right here, which seems to be the case with Paul Drogo, is that these types of reforms, these types of changes can happen if operating from a position of strength and a position of authority. So to the extent that Khal Drogo can continue exerting his physical superiority over everybody around him, then it's entirely possible that this will serve to only make him stronger and move the Dothraki more in this, you know, more egalitarian gender egalitarian sense that he's doing without it being a threat to him. On the flip side, if at some point he weakens, whether that's because of losing control over the people underneath him or in a literal physical sense that may become more of a problem. Sure. And that kind of brings us to our third, the third plot point that I wanted to get at here. Uh, we, we find that, that Khal Drogo is a little more injured than uh, Jorah Mormont had let on. Yeah, some uh, of that physical weakness might be raising its head, it's just rearing its right head already. Now. Uh, he has an arrow going through an arm, I think. He's definitely mm -hmm. kind of torn up a little bit. And we're introduced to a new character uh, whose name, as I pull my notes up, is Miri Mazdur. Yes. Uh, she's a god's wife of this temple. She is a magi. Magi? Yeah, so that's, that's what the Dothraki call her as like a... a she's a witch. Uh, yeah, they're, they're saying, we don't like this. We don't deal with magi. And she's a magi. We, we don't mess with that stick with the eunuch healers that we have who kind of dabble in little things. Don't mess with somebody who says she knows magic. Right. Uh, with that said, um, Daenerys is quick to say, listen, Khal Drogo's fucking hurt. We're going to use who's available to us and get mm -hmm. him cured. Uh, and she does. That's kind of like how the chapter goes, right? They, this, this magi becomes this real presence. She goes and does her herbs and healings and whatever it is on Khal Drogo. And it seems to be a positive thing. Uh, the blood riders are quick to say, like, listen, like, you're going to stay with us because however this turns out for our king, that's how it will turn out for you. Yep. He uh, dies, you die. Danny also prods a little bit and finds out that this woman, it might be really good to have around for childbirth and, mm -hmm. uh, and says, you're going to be part of my, my, my cadre now. We're, we're going to be, we're going to be a group. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's really where we wrap up. I want to briefly touch on a fun little, uh, Easter egg that 
comes up near the end of this chapter, and then we'll talk about what's next for Danny. Um, but she asks Miri Mazdur, where did you learn your healing? Uh, and she says, well, you know, my culture has this. My mother was God's wife before me and taught me all the songs and spells most pleasing to the great shepherd. Uh, but she also traveled around and learned from other places as well, which is interesting to see. You know, you have this very pastoral community that she's coming from. And nonetheless, she went to a shy by the shadow, which uh, is not on your map in the front of the book, but is as far east as east goes. Uh, this is really quite a trip. Ships from many lands come to Ashai, so I lingered long to study the healing ways of distant peoples. A moon singer of the Jogos Nai gifted me with her birthing songs. A woman of your own riding people, the Dothraki taught me the magics of grass and corn and horse. And a maester from the sunset lands opened a body for me and showed me all the secrets that hide beneath the skin. So doing an autopsy. We get a name. This isn't a name we've heard before. Jorah Marmont asks. We hear his name was Marwin. Uh, but the fun Easter egg here is... Uh, Miri Mazdur, the last name here, Mazdur, is very similar to Maester. And so it's possible that she appointed herself in, you know, with an accent or some uh, uh, bastardization of the Westerosi word. She appointed herself to this order after studying with this guy, which I think is just a fun little, little moment uh, in her background there. I do like that. I will say, and I, again, not founded, and I don't really believe it, but part of me wondered, is she another plant is she trying to oh. kill Daenerys you know she, she like another so Westerosi much. assassin yeah exactly she's here she, she certainly doesn't people. fit in in this society exactly. uh, from from the I mean the very surface level that we've seen it at yeah. um that being said I think she looks like the people there you know and, and she references her mother being in the town the other people right. seem to know her she does seem to have ties to this community so so that really could go either way that's very fair so you know, there's, there's, it's not totally clear where Danny's story goes from here. The thrust is still pointed towards Westeros. You know, we still have Drogo's commitment towards getting her there. Um, but I want to ask more specifically with him, is he going to be okay? Like, it, it's not just the arrow in the arm. He, he lost a nipple. He was cut so badly, uh, which is pretty aggressive. And, you know, like you hinted at, we're seeing maybe some disruption being caused by Danny among his ranks. Is this going to work? Is he going to heal? Is he going to die from this uh you know what what's next for drogo and as a, a, a result for danny yeah i'm i'm torn because what we've what we know about this people is that they are devoted to their leader you know so even if we step back two or three moves from where they are right now like the man said we're gonna go across the sea. We're, we the horse people are going to get on boats <laughs> you know like, yeah we're going to do and that seems to be a huge deal already and people seem to be following that fine enough it's hard to tell in such a violent society you know what is real concern right like oh i don't like this and i feel aggressive about it versus like i don't like anything i'm aggressive about anything but the big you know the strongest lion it leads the pack no matter what right. yeah absolutely um, he doesn't seem while he does seem more injured than Jorah Mormont first kind of like led on to Danny, right? Uh, he doesn't seem in any terrible situation. Like, like yeah, like he's he up and about and uh, yeah. talking and being boisterous, kind of the same personality as we've seen. Exactly. Uh, it, there, we also don't have a lot of we don't. While we know many stories about the Dothraki as a people, we don't have a historical context for 
the sort of day-to-day living. And what I mean by that is, is like, maybe their lives are wars like this every day. You know, we know how long his hair is and how short the hair is of other Dothraki, you know, for when they lose, you know, maybe this is just par, par for the course, or maybe he's about to go on a more aggressive war campaign than the Dothraki ever have. Right. And, and I don't, I don't have a context for that. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, We do have, have little bits and pieces on that, just in the sense that, you know, we know that their lives revolve around the Dothraki Sea and this geographical area. So even the idea of trying to push towards Westeros and make that change does seem to be something different in kind. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily tell us anything about whether he's gotten hurt like this in a million right. battles before. You know, we know he's fought a ton and that's how you get to be in charge and he's won those fights and that, you know, that often carries with it some risk. Uh, yeah. Like That is just the way it goes. Yeah, but that's, that's where I leave it. I think that... I don't think anything could be worse than for Danny than him dying because then she's just another like Western who has already pissed off a lot of people. Right. On the other hand, she could be in a very John situation of just continuing to ride the position for a long time and shape herself and, and, and work those around her, which could be a really positive thing. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and find out. I guess we will. What's next for us, man. Where are we going? Two chapters. We're going back to Tyrion for Tyrion Ooh. 8, and then another Catelyn, Catelyn 10. It's been a lot Ooh. of fun lately. I know you're happy about that. All right, let's do it. All right, Michael, I'll talk to you then. That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing two chapters, The Game of Thrones, Tyrion 8, and Catelyn 10. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast. Tell us your feedback or thoughts on Twitter, at Banners or at our email, Rose without banners at gmail.com. Thanks as always for listening.